This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with an old favorite, Duana Welsh, author of Love Factually. She's been on the show a couple times. I'd say, Jason, she's probably been on more than pretty much anybody else that doesn't work for the art of charm, and she is just a powerhouse. Today, evolutionary psychology, how men have shaped women through evolution and sexual preference, and of course, how women have shaped men through the same process, the concepts of evolution, the human mating rituals, and the concept of co-evolution, where men and women mutually shape each other's biological and hence psychological changes. There is no mind-body separation. Fascinating episode with Duana Welsh, as usual. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason. What's shaking, baby? The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. And now, Duana Welsh. So you've been on the show many times before, and by many I mean two, but that's many for us. We don't have people back very often, and it's not because they're not worthy, it's just because limited shelf space. But the feedback that we've gotten on this is so positive, and also just due to popular demand where people are like, but you should talk about this, and it's like, eh, we only have an hour each time. I would love to, first of all, reintroduce you, Duana Welsh, your book has been just flying off the proverbial digital shelves here, Love Factually, due to, in part, by people who've heard you on this show. And can you give us, quote unquote, your qualifications? I mean, why do we continue to listen to you? Well, first of all, I'm thankful that you do. I love being on your show. Of all the shows I'm on, which is getting to be more and more and more, I really get the best feedback and the most wonderful letters and positive responses from your listeners. So I want to start off there. I think what they're connecting with and what they're telling me they're connecting with is that I'm the only person who writes about start to finish dating from a scientific standpoint instead of a standpoint that's only based on opinions. And it's funny that you should mention science versus just opinion, because before the show, we actually talked about this, and you had a really interesting point, which is that many people seem to think that their opinion is just as valid as somebody else's science. And I don't wanna go too far down that rabbit hole, but can you tell us, it sounds like a very elementary thing, but can you tell us what science is versus just opinion? Because I realize if I had to explain that difference to somebody, I'm not sure that I could do it convincingly. Yeah, sure. I actually spend a lot of time thinking about this, mostly while wailing and gnashing my teeth and rending my garments. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been in education for a long time. And when I first entered education, I was a wee child of 25 when I taught my first psychology course at the University of Florida. And I'm now 47. And what I've seen is a deep 
evolution of our culture, where at one point it was understood that science is a factual process of inquiry, meaning that the result you get at the end is to the extent that humans are ever able to determine basically building a wall of individual facts that tie into overarching ideas called theories. And the word theory does not mean this is an idea that might or might not be true. The word theory means these are observations that work together that lead to an overarching idea. There is a theory of gravity, and obviously gravity is also a fact. There's a theory of evolution, and whether or not people want to politically or socially or morally acknowledge it, evolution is a fact. There's never been a single scientific line of inquiry that failed to side with evolution, not one. And so when people disagree with things like science, it's based usually on emotion and not on other science. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I didn't want to get it wrong. I was very concerned with getting it right in my book because I'm a generalist. I take other people's research from diverse backgrounds, sociology, psychology, biology, anthropology, and I make an amalgam of that in an advice-giving format, and I'm deeply concerned with possibly getting it wrong. And so one of the things I do is I actually run my work by the scientists I talk about, and many of them reviewed my book. And so, you know, that helps me withstand the occasional, very occasional, slings and arrows of people who basically say things like, I don't want to agree with it, and I don't want to believe it, so I just don't. Or this is a bad book because it didn't tell me what I already thought. The gold standard scientists have backed it, and I'm going to have to go with that because they understand factually what's happening. That's why it's called love factually and not love in my opinion. I like that because love in my opinion is actually much less catchy. (laughs) Well, it is. I do hate to acknowledge that I think the title is the best writing in the book, and it was my editor who did it. Uh, Well, that's a bummer, right? (laughs) But then again, it is his job. You're a scientist. I wanted to branch out from what we've talked about in the previous two episodes, which, by the way, if you're listening right now, what everybody who just heard that is, we're going to link to the previous two episodes in the show notes so you don't have to search too far and try to spell Doina 14 times and the different variations that you might find in your head. But one of the things that you had sort of teased us with last time were the differences between men and women and how we have shaped each other over time through evolution, which I thought that totally makes sense, and yet I've never thought about it. So I'd love to get into that. But first, I think we kind of need to back up the truck and talk about some of the core differences between men and women that are, of course, aside from the obvious differences that people usually think of. And then I'd like to talk about how women have shaped men's psychology and vice versa. Yeah, this is a great topic. I know that I was well into my adulthood before it ever occurred to me. And it only occurred to me because I started reading some particular studies on the subject. It completely blew my mind. And it's interesting to me that it hadn't occurred to me. I think that what was happening with me happens to a lot of people. We tend to think that we're separate from the animal kingdom. We think that somehow the natural laws governing the other species on the planet are somehow not applicable to us. And so we can see co-evolution. We can see that Certain types of birds have developed very long bills to get to the nectar of plants, and certain types of plants have developed long tubes that those bills fit into. We can see the coevolution there. It's harder for us to be okay seeing coevolution that's happening and has always been happening between men and women, the way that we have shaped each other, the way that we have created each other, literally. 
Well, it seems like also there's gonna be less historical, and I'm just theorizing here, historical pushback when somebody says, look at how these plants have evolved along with the birds that pollinate them. People go, oh, that's interesting. They don't go, blasphemer, you're going to jail in the Vatican. Yeah, exactly. You know, it makes us deeply uncomfortable in some ephemeral gut level way to consider that we are subject to the same forces as the rest of nature, that evolution is continually happening. It's not finished, but that it happens so slowly that we can never see it in the course of just one lifetime in the human species. And in fact, a lot of good science indicates that in the last 45,000 years, really, there's been very, very little change in the human genome. There is something strangely unsettling about thinking, wow, you know, I'm just a product of things that have been going on for a really long time, and I'm not that special, right? I'm just another iteration that has tons of flaws that will be eradicated in a few hundred thousand years. Or, alternatively, I am the inheritor and in a long line of winners. Well, okay, that's a little bit more empowering, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you have inherited literally everything that has worked in millions of years. And had any one of your ancestors failed in the two prime directives of evolution, which is surviving and casting your own genes forward, literally, by definition, you wouldn't be here today. So you are the winner among winners. There could have been millions of options for a not you, and yet there is you. And you have your opportunity to make your mark in this long, long history. Much more empowering than my definition. See, it's funny, because now you're throwing Art of Charm stuff back at me, the reframe, I like it. You have been paying attention to it, and I, okay, all right. Yeah, I actually like your stuff, and I've I gotta say, I'm somewhat amazed in the best possible way to have been invited back. Your audience, like I said, is just tremendous. You know, a number of your audience members have become my clients now, and you have really smart, savvy, engaged, respectful, decent people on your show. I really appreciate. Yeah, we appreciate them as well, especially when they when they write right in. So I'm glad that they're doing the same thing for you. I think it takes a special person to actually listen to something like this that can point out all your human flaws and how you can start to fix them and go, oh, I like this, because the process itself can be very uncomfortable and it can be very painful sometimes. And I think a lot of people just go, yeah, this is an uncomfortable set of truths that I don't really feel like examining. Let's turn on the one where they throw things at each other and laugh into the microphone for 35 minutes. And those are easier in many ways to stomach because it requires no thought and no action after the show. You can just passively listen. That's not really how we roll. There's a big idea that I don't think I've ever presented before. And since we were going to talk about co-evolution anyway, I think last time we mostly focused on how women have shaped men. And I've got a lot of information today, if you want to cover it, on uh, how men have shaped women and how it's still happening. But the really big, big idea is that basically women want two P's and men want two F's. Men want fertility and fidelity and women want provision and protection. And the fact that we want these things has drastically shaped what we offer one another and even how we lie about each other, how we compete with people in our own sex. Uh, when we get ugly with each other, we do it in very predictable ways, all based on coevolution. Good, let's talk about that. First, let's start with how women have shaped men, because as much as I'd love to sit here and start with, all right, here's how we made the opposite sex, I think it might have more impact to find out how we've actually been shaped by women. Oh yeah, absolutely. Let's take a moment to talk about male ambition. 
I feel male ambition all the every day. So it's a good starting place. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, in our current political environment, men of both parties who are ambitious, when you type in their name and you type in the word ambition on Google, you get a bunch of positive articles about them. But the one female candidate, if you type in her name and type in ambition, she's seen as overambitious. She's seen as not feminine. She's seen as basically not good enough based on something that men get major points for. So one of my questions as a social scientist is, where would that come from? And it turns out that men are more ambitious than women. It's not just that there are evil social forces that keep women from ever achieving the heights in societies. But if you look at every society in the world that scientists are looking at, men are large and in charge. And part of that is because women want them that way or at least they used to a long time ago. And we are the inheritors of the psychology that worked 45,000 years ago. 45,000 years ago when there wasn't Target or Target on the corner and there wasn't a Starbucks on the other corner and there was no Lowe's or Home Depot, people had to be really ingenious. And if they didn't succeed at that, then they didn't succeed at surviving and passing on their own genes. But men's and women's different biology assured that they couldn't use exactly the same strategies to survive and pass on their own genes. Women at that point in time needed at least one solid provider and protector. I know it's hard to think about this today. It's offensive in some ways. I know that first time I read all this stuff, I was deeply mortally offended because I'm a feminist. No, I have a PhD in psychology. I didn't accidentally get that. Obviously, I have some ambition of my own. And I just felt like, you know, I think that I am as good as any man that's out there. And I just think that I didn't want to be seen as different. But clearly, there are differences. You look around the world, and either there's some huge shell game where women are just shut out of power, or women are gaining power by obtaining a man who is powerful. And that appears to be what's happening even today, even among people who want to be liberated from that. Right, that doesn't necessarily have to be something that's offensive or going against feminist concept. And that's another show topic, most likely. It just seems on its face like it should be kind of offensive, like, what, I can't do this on my own? But it's really, it's along the same lines of what we just spoke about, which is I don't wanna be shaped by a woman or I don't wanna be shaped by a man over the last few hundred thousand years of humanity, that's somehow disempowering, but it doesn't really have to be. It doesn't have to be. And so there's this very interesting series of studies that shows that men will trade their power for youth and beauty, basically. So men are more ambitious than women. It's by any measure you want to use. If you want to ask people how ambitious they are, if you want to look at who's attaining the most career success, if you want to look at who is giving up positions of prestige in the work world for their family, regardless of how you want to look at this and regardless of the social pressures applied, and I'm not denying there are social pressures, but regardless of all that at bottom, men in general are more ambitious. And so they never feel that they've achieved enough. I mean, have you ever met a man, however successful, who said, yeah, I've succeeded enough. I'm just going to stop now. Yeah, I was thinking about this when I was looking at the prep and doing the prep for the show because I watch Brian Koppelman, who we've also had on the show, his show Billions, and it's about, in part, about a guy who's a billionaire, and he's going up against the U.S. attorney, so there's this sort of ego battle. One guy's really rich, the other guy has government power, and you look at this guy who's got billions and billions of dollars, and he's not like, you know, I should just hang out and not go to work. 
he is making moves and he's a workaholic and he's working like crazy. And I'm sure he wakes up in the morning, or the real version of Bobby Axelrod wakes up in the morning and goes, but Richard Branson has multiple islands and I only have one or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's a personal crisis for him. Yeah. So you ask yourself, so where does that come from? It comes from evolution having zero off switch. What I would like to see is evolution having an off switch, meaning that we achieve a certain amount of, in men's case, power and resources, in women's case, youth and beauty, and then click, it goes off when it's no longer needed or relevant for our survival and reproduction. But what really happens is that men and women continue wanting what they want all their lives. And this means that each sex strives to give the other what that other sex wants all their lives so that men remain ambitious really as far as science can see forever. One of my favorite examples of this is a study where men were asked to rate ads that had young, beautiful women in them, and other men were asked to rate ads that had older, less attractive models. And what the men didn't realize was they were being implicitly primed with youth and beauty or not youth and beauty to see how it affected their self ratings of ambition. So later in the study, when they were asked about, among other things, their ambition level, 60% of the men who had seen the ads with youth and beauty rated themselves as highly ambitious compared to only 9% of men who had recently been exposed to the less attractive older female models. So this is, in other words, unconscious and it's running our show. So basically they looked at pictures of young, physically attractive women, and then they suddenly dot, 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 got more ambitious, however that might have been measured? Yes, it made them connect with their feeling of ambition. They were asked how they felt. But then other studies, and these are some heavy-hitting scientists. You know, I do look at the source. I do consider, is this a person with a body of research or just one study? How was the study done? That kind of thing. So we're talking about, you know, the David Busses and the Bob Cialdini's and the Doug Kenrick's of the world, really heavy-hitting scientists. And uh, Roni also. Some of Cialdini's and Kenrick's research between 2003 and 2006 showed that you don't just get men who self-describe as being ambitious, you actually get men who behave in a more creative, independent, or non-conforming way. If you give them an opportunity to work in a group or on a task, they will try to set themselves apart from other men if there's a young, beautiful woman in the room. And they won't attempt to do that nearly as much if there's not a young, beautiful woman in the room. Priming men with youth and beauty creates ambition. Women have created ambition in men. Women have created ambition, in men, and we see this occasionally, or all the time, when someone walks in the room and guys sit up straight and they start talking louder and they start maybe throwing money around a little bit more, et cetera, et cetera. And these are things that have been primed over time from bars to casinos. We've even seen it in school. And when we come back, we're gonna talk more about how women have shaped men through evolution, of course, and how men have shaped women over time. This is Art of Charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to AOC. We're talking with Duana Welsh, author of Love Factually, about how women have shaped men through evolution and vice versa. And you'd mentioned, Duana, that not only have women shaped men and, and sort of given us the gift of ambition, but this sort of evolutionary shaping or molding even affects what men and women lie about to each other and to the opposite sex. So I would love to hear about that because I was looking at your examples and I thought, wow, nailed it. Yeah, you know, what's really interesting to me is that I know when I tend to think about the battle between the sexes and when I think about research about that, I think about men and women in conflict. But the bigger conflict by far is men competing against men for women and women competing against women for men. And so the lies that we tell tend to map back onto the things I told you that women and men want. Women want provision protection. Men want fertility and fidelity. And so at an implicit level, heterosexual people know what the opposite sex wants and they try really hard to either offer it or if I can't offer it, hey, maybe I could lie about it. So I want to start off by what it is women lie about when they lie to men and what men lie about when they lie to women. And then what lies do we tell about a rival? If I want you and another woman wants you, how am I going to get you to not want her anymore? So women lie about what men want. And since men tend to want youth and beauty, research by William Took and some others showed that women admit that most of their lies about youth and beauty are not outright lies. In other words, they don't say, I am youthful and beautiful. What they do is they use enhancements I remember there was one woman who told me, I always stuff my bra before a date. I wear huge padded bras. And then when the guy takes it off, I go, whoops, tricked ya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and guys go, uh, we've already crossed the Rubicon. So this is still happening. Yeah. You know, there's so much else here to enjoy. I'm going for it. You know, very often that kind of lie actually plays out. Think about it. Women's lies tend to be in terms of these are some research examples, sucking in their tummy, patting their bra, using hair dye, using makeup, wearing dark clothes to look thinner or slimmer, lying about or simply withholding information about age online. Most egregious example I ever heard 
this guy went into a meeting with a woman he had met online and she was 15 years older than her profile pictures. That's a bit of an extra stretch that probably should not have happened. But I mean, I get why this happens because basically these are key factors in decision-making and this has even affected manners, right? I mean, you never ask a woman how old she is. Everyone's heard that. And it's like, well, why? Oh, because it makes her quote unquote, supposedly less desirable in terms of selection as a mate. And that is something that nobody wants, even if they're already married. Correct. Yeah. You know, depressingly, research shows that women who appear more youthful and beautiful are treated better by their husbands. Man, that does kind of suck, actually. (laughs) It never stops mattering. Women who appear more youthful and beautiful get more responses in online ads. They get more dates. The good things in life tend to come to them. And so it's a tremendous advantage. It's not surprising that when women lie or fudge, because tucking in your tummy when someone walks by is not exactly an egregious lie, but it's fudging a little bit. While these things may not be outright lies, you can see why someone would be tempted to lie about a dimension that is very important to the opposite sex before they know you. Of course, and I don't wanna get too far down this path, but it's kind of fair because, look, if all of my selection criteria were based on my primal instincts, I'd be largely miserable because if I didn't pick somebody because this one person had a inch flatter stomach or however you measure that than another person who was a better fit for me in other ways. I mean, we all have seen guys that have married gorgeous women that turn out to be living nightmares and we feel bad for them. Yeah, there needs to be more than just the pretty face and the hot bod for sure. And you know, I don't wanna emphasize fertility and fidelity to the exclusion of everything else. Research is really clear that character does count. But before you know someone, before you know their character, that's when you get attracted enough as a man to make that first move. And so you're making that first move based on the more shallow surface features. That's what I'm saying. Because that's all we have to work with at the moment. Yeah, because that's what you've got to work with at the moment. But it does continue mattering at some level because, you know, sadly, women are being treated better if they appear more youthful and beautiful, even after they're married and even after their character is fully known. And women recognize this. They know, hey, this is what guys want and I need to work to provide it. And so one example of how men have shaped women's evolution is not just these lies, but the fact that women never feel like they're young and pretty enough, just like the guy you talked about, the billionaire, he doesn't feel rich enough yet. Right, even if you have the most, you still don't have enough. You never have enough. And you know, a lot of women feel that this is deeply unfair because whereas most of you guys can and do continue amassing resources throughout your lives and actually you gain power the older you get in most cases, That's not true of women. If a person's power is based on youth and beauty, you can't maintain youth and beauty forever. Right, here's something depressing, right? You'll never be more young and beautiful, most likely, than you are right now. (laughs) That sucks, there's no getting around it. That's bad if you're looking at everything through this lens. That's right, yeah, I talked to a scientist named Carrie Getz about this. Carrie is an evolutionary psychologist. She got her PhD in David Buss's lab. David Buss is the gold standard for EP, evolutionary psych. And she and I were teaching at Southwestern University. And uh, I said, so Carrie, how long did it take you to stop being depressed about the waist to hip ratio research? These are the kinds of questions nerds ask each other when they're alone, I guess. Right. Yeah, no, I get it. And you know what she said? Are you kidding? I'm not over it yet. Yeah, I totally understand that. All jokes aside, it's you look at that and you go, crap, this doesn't favor me. How philosophical can I get about this? And some people make their living off of that. 
Yes, a lot of people, plastic surgeons make their living off that. Anybody who's selling any kind of physical enhancement product for women, they're making their living off that. And the only other group that's really terrified about this is gay men because men want youth and beauty. All men want youth and beauty. That includes gay, that means uh, that if you want a man, regardless of your orientation, if you want a man, you have to work to provide youth and beauty. That's just how it is. So this means that when women are trying to get rid of a rival, like my example, if I want you, Jordan, and you want somebody besides me, there are things that research suggests that I can say about my rival that will actually cause you to lose interest. Well, let's hear it. This is like black hat weaponry, like this is chemical weapons for the opposite sex, right? So not saying this is a how-to, but tell us what women can say about rivals that will get guys to start to lose interest. This one just blows me away. Research showed that when women said something to denigrate their rival's appearance, that men actually became less physically attracted to that rival. Like like the like the old, ew, but her nose is like sideways or something like that. Exactly. This is what blows me away, Jordan. Okay, you guys all have eyes in your head. You can see whether her nose, in fact, is sideways. You could make your own judgment, but... It turns out that men's status is associated with how beautiful their long-term partner is or their short-term partner. In the eyes of other people. Exactly. So if another woman says, oh, her nose is crooked, even if you didn't think so, now that the woman being talked about has lost some status in your eyes. You know, blind men want to know what their girlfriends look like. They ask sighted men and women to tell them. (laughs) That's terrible. The one sort of segment of society that you think is completely over that, is still trying to have a peak. Yeah, they totally get it that even if youth and beauty on a sight level are irrelevant to them, that it's not irrelevant to everyone else. Everyone else is judging them by their partner, and they will ask, does she really look like a model? That's terrible news for unattractive people everywhere who thought they could just date someone blind and be free from those chains. Yeah, so women lie about other women's appearance. David Bust has this wonderful story about... I don't know who the story's about. He's never revealed this, as far as I know. But he has this wonderful story about this guy who was really interested in a particular woman, and this other woman approached him and said, ooh, her thighs are really fat. And he lost some interest in her, even though he had up till then been very attracted, and even though he could tell with his own eyes whether or not her thighs were fat. That's just mean. Yeah, so... It amazes me that women can get away with that, but they totally do, apparently, is denigrating the rival based on her appearance. Another way women denigrate other women is to talk about the woman's history of promiscuity and or to just make it up. One of my good friends from college is exceptionally beautiful, Angelina Jolie in her prime beautiful. And she always looked like that. And so we started college the same year and the lies that were told about her were horrendous, causing you to drop out of school kind of lies. This is a small university. And reliably, lies would circulate about her having slept with the entire football team or having, we didn't have a football team, but the equivalent thereof, you know, that she would sleep with anyone. She didn't have any criteria at all, that she went down on any guy who asked, that she would do anything for anyone just for the asking. And here's the thing. Men have a short-term mating strategy and a long-term mating strategy that operate simultaneously. So women who are listening, if you tell this sort of lie about a woman, you will 
take her off that man's long-term mating radar, but you've just put her onto his short-term mating radar. So in other words, this doesn't necessarily get rid of a rival. It may just get rid of the rival for a long-term conquest. Right, which is even more cruel, right? Because it gets these dumb guys treating her like crap all the time and takes relationship prospects off the table during a period of time for her, especially where she's trying to meet somebody, hopefully that she's gonna be with for a long time. Ideally, a serious relationship that might result in marriage, and you're ruining that because you have low self-esteem compared to her. Absolutely, it's not an aspect of human functioning, female functioning that I find myself proud of. I am proud of the fact that I never did this. But I will tell you, I've stayed in touch with this particular woman, and research totally backs up that this happens a lot. This particular woman was able to rise above it and marry a wonderful human being who is very successful and basically living well is the best revenge and she has her revenge. (laughs) But look at what she had to endure all because she was unusually beautiful at a small campus environment where most of the women felt they couldn't compete with her. That's really depressing, but I totally get it. Everybody who's been to school with anybody over the opposite sex has always seen something like this happen, whether they realized it in the moment or not. And so hopefully by sort of shedding some light on this, people can go, oh, okay, this might not necessarily be true. And I think for most of us, our critical thinking skills are on point with not necessarily believing everything we hear about other people. I know I'm gonna get emails from women as a result of this going, that was me, still is, having this problem at work right now, had this problem in college, had this problem growing up, and trash talking a same-sex rival happens all the time. It happened when I first started dating Jenny. For a long time, a lot of her male friends or people she thought were her friends were doing really weird stuff and she was really sad and disappointed and we had to have a talk about science like this to explain why guys that she thought were her friends were being complete a-holes all of a sudden now that she was starting to be involved in a serious relationship. And it, it was really disappointing for her because it turned out that a lot of guys who were pretending to be her friend or that she was actually friends with for a while had this weird low opinion of me when everybody else in her life did not and she was just mystified because she trusted them. And that turned out to be something that, this was the exception to the rule, where these guys would normally be truthful and tell her things that she could rely on. They were saying, no, this guy, you know, he looks like trouble, and here's all these different reasons why, and here's why you shouldn't be with him. And as it turned out, it was just this. It was trash talking a same-sex rival, even though I didn't even know these guys. Well, exactly, Jordan. I remember when I met my daughter's father, there was a guy I had dated. I'd maintained a friendship with him. And when he saw Don for the first time, he pulled me aside and he said, you're really with that pencil neck geek? And you're like, hey, I'm a scientist. These are the types of guys I date. And I remember the comment because it made me laugh. What he had done in that moment was he had tried to use an insult that works on men. Right. If he had been a woman and tried to denigrate my appearance to another man, that totally would have worked. But he tried something that doesn't work on women. It stood out in my mind because, you know what? A pencil net geek, you know what part of that I'm paying attention to? Geek. You know what? Geeks are successful. Yeah, provider. He basically said, you're going to date this guy who's probably going to be successful later in life due to his work ethic and academic prowess? What are you thinking? Yeah, exactly. I didn't laugh in his face because I didn't want to be cruel, but I thought that's got to be one of the least competent insults I've ever heard. Usually when men denigrate another man to a woman, they're a lot more savvy about it than that. Like Jordan, if your girlfriend, Jenny, right? If she told you what these guys said about you, what kind of things did they say? 
they were saying things like, look, this guy's clearly a womanizer. He's just using you. He's probably just got an, a weirdo Asian fetish. What a creep. Stuff like that. Yeah. So what they were denigrating was your ability to provide commitment. Women are interested in provision and protection, but they're not interested in provision and protection for one day. They're interested in these things forever in a committed relationship. And so what these men said was, you're not going to be able to hold on to this guy. He's going to leave you. He's going to cheat on you. That's one way that men denigrate other men as rivals. Usually though, if they can get by with it, if she hadn't known you well yet at that time, it sounds like by the time she was hearing all this crap about you, that she knew you pretty well. So men's usual tactics wouldn't have worked on her. But one of the usual male tactics in denigrating a rival would be to denigrate your resources. Well, you know, Jordan doesn't really have those degrees. I mean, he says he does, but I'm pretty sure he's just lying about that. Or, you know, he drives this fancy car, but he's in debt up to his neck to drive that. Or he just borrowed that car. Or he doesn't have any of the land or assets he claims to have. (laughs) <laughs> the lander ass. Yes, that worked in the medieval time. <laughs> well, you know, with certain social classes, that works right now. And there are cultures today where it would be he doesn't have as many goats or cattle as he claims to have. It's very culturally dependent. The big message is that when men denigrate men, they tend to denigrate either the man's ability to be faithful because women are worried about commitment. So if you say he's a player, he'll dump you tomorrow. That's an effective denigration technique because it's interesting. There was a study that showed that more than half of women who have casual sex are doing it to get a boyfriend. In other words, for them, it wasn't casual. Bad strategy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not a very effective strategy, but a lot of times men and women, we do what would work on us instead of what signals success for the opposite sex. And so women are thinking, well, you know, if you give me your sex and your time, I'll be your girlfriend. So you'll be my boyfriend if I do the same thing, right? What I'm saying is women tend to have this long-term mating strategy. So when a man denigrates another man's ability or desire to commit, says, you know, he's lived with eight women and he's never married any of them. I mean, it's not going to happen with you. Give it up. That's an effective strategy for getting rid of a rival. I can see that absolutely makes sense. You have to not make the mistake of thinking that everybody thinks like we do, either personally or in terms of gender. And when we come back, I wanna hear about how even women's skin tone has been shaped by men's preferences. I wanna hear about what guys lie about as well. This is Art of Charm. All right, we're back with Duana Welsh. Talking about how women have shaped men and vice versa, in the book you talk about even how women's skin tone has been shaped by men's preferences. And I just got back from Asia and a lot of the cosmetics are like whitening cream, whitening mask. And when Jenny gets presents from relatives in Asia, it's almost inevitably some kind of like thing you wear at night that you wake up and you're a shade whiter or some sort of skin bleaching, sunscreen or whatever, it's always so funny because she doesn't want that. I mean, she wants a tan because she lives in the United States, but in Asia, all the models are airbrushed and bleached to heck in magazines where it's like this unnaturally whiter than pale white people are in the US. And I thought that was really funny and kind of a weird, blatant difference in preference. How is women's skin tone in real life, other than magazines and in television, shaped by men's sexual preferences? Yeah, so this just dropped my jaw. It turns out that uh, Nicholas Wade, who wrote a very controversial scientific exploration of the human genome called Before the Dawn, 
he talks about some research where reliably in every human society ever studied, women are at least 10% fairer or whiter than men. This includes places where people are not what most people consider to be white. For example, okay, so in my personal life, when I was in graduate school and I was friends with an African-American woman, we went to the beach in Florida. I was at the University of Florida and so was she. We went to the beach and she immediately whipped out this enormous umbrella and sunscreen and I being totally ignorant because I had never been to the beach with anybody who wasn't as white as I was, said, I thought that you wouldn't burn as much as I would. I mean, I know that sounds really stupid, but I thought you wouldn't. And she said, I won't burn as much as you do, stupid. She said, but I also will get a lot darker and that makes me less able to attract someone. That's something a scientist would say for sure in college. That's something I've learned from friends of mine that are African-American as well. They're like, oh, you know, darker women have a tougher time dating. And maybe I don't see the subtle shades of difference here, and pun intended, but that surprised me. Yeah, it really surprised me too, but it's real. I don't understand why it's real. I know that gentlemen really do prefer blondes in the Caucasian group and that one hypothesis why men prefer even hair that is fair is that most of the time when someone's hair is fair, that person is very young. Our hair tends to darken as we age. So fair hair can be yet another sign of youth. Similarly, skin tends to show a more mottled and dark appearance as we get older. And so my personal hypothesis is that the reason men prefer fairer skin is, again, it is a sign of youth. Youth is a sign of fertility. Men can't cast their genes forward all by themselves, except for certain political figures who I hope reproduce by budding. Everybody else has to rely on actual sexual intercourse, whereas men are endlessly fertile. Women are not. So men have to without having to think about it, be sexually attracted to people who are able to cast that guy's genes forward with him. And one of the features that these fertile people tend to have, fertile women, is everything that we think is beautiful. Lighter skin, longer hair, lustrous hair, eyes that are symmetrical and that open fairly wide. I believe it's still true that the number one operation in Asia is removing the occipital fold to make women's eyes appear rounder or larger. Yeah, don't they call that double eyelid or something like that? Is that what that's called? Or is that different? Yeah, the occipital fold, they get rid of that. And so I think that what we're seeing with women's skin tone being lighter, it's so weird, Jordan. I mean, I knew women tried to make their skin tone appear lighter. What stunned me was that women actually are lighter than men everywhere in the world. But this makes sense when you see it through the lens of evolution. What happens with co-evolution is that one sex, by preferring to mate with people who have certain qualities or traits, they perpetuate those qualities or traits through their children. So if men prefer fair skin, and especially many, many thousands of years ago, before people figured out the whole makeup thing or before makeup was uh, reliably helpful, you would have been dealing with an environment where men would selectively have preferred women who offered youth and beauty. And one of those signs would be a woman whose skin could remain fair and clear through all the various pestilences she would face. Exposure to a lot of sunlight, it being just one, but also exposure to disease, viruses, bacteria, ongoing illness, acne. 
if her skin could stay youthful and beautiful through all that, it was showing a genetic profile that would probably fit with his. And you hear about that, at least things that sound medieval, like the fairest of them all, right? Literally means the lightest. Yes, it literally means the lightest. To say that a woman is fair is to say that she's beautiful. It is also to say that her skin is clear and light-toned. Right, like the modern version is the most toned and athletic, or youngest, but not creepy youngest. (laughs) Yeah, you know what's really interesting is in preparation for our talk today, I actually was reading up on eating disorders, which may seem like it's not related, but you know, eating disorders are prevalently a female condition, not a male condition. And if this was purely genetic, we would expect to see it distributed evenly across the two sexes, but it's far from the case. There are evolutionary scientists who really think that eating disorders in women is a way for women to try to maintain youth and beauty. And what confused me about that was, how is an eating disorder youthful or beautiful? Well, the truth is in cultures that don't have enough access to calories, really big girls are valuable. Having a larger frame, carrying more fat on the torso is seen as more valuable in cultures where your next meal is not assured. And in fact, men like to have really fat wives in cultures like that because it shows that the man is successful and he can afford to have a fat wife. Right, and you may have seen this. I swear I saw this on like Nat Geo or Discovery. There's a place and it's in Africa and it's where the women, when they wanna get married, they go to this like crappy camp in the middle of the desert and this old lady feeds them really, really rich buttermilk and they drink jugs and jugs of this all day, every day for like a month and they gain as much weight as possible and it's just awful and the guy who was doing the, I wanna say it's Louis Thoreau, he's like this funny English journalist, he went there and tried to do it and he was just barfing everywhere, drinking this stuff because they force feed you this and it's disgusting and rich and you do it for so long and they interviewed guys like, why do you prefer this? And they're like, yeah, the bigger the better, the bigger the woman the better and women have the same cultural stereotype that the bigger you are, the more attractive you are. And they just try to get as big as they can in this really unhealthy way. And it's actually kind of disturbing to watch because you're just watching these really attractive, fit-looking women inhale as much heavy dairy as they can over a really long period of time to gain weight rapidly. And it's kind of gross. It is. I actually saw the beginning of that and then I thought, I can't. I'm just going to throw up watching this. I just can't. Why would I ever? You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things that triggers your gag reflex while watching. Yeah. So I didn't watch the whole thing. But, you know, to many of us women in the West where there's the perpetual pressure to be thin, that kind of culture in a way can sound appealing just in the sense that you can eat whatever you want. And as you gain weight, you will be more attractive. That sounds like a real liberation to us. But it turns out not to be because. Men globally, regardless of economic well-being, want a woman with a 0.7 waist to hip ratio, and that doesn't change in cultures that want the larger women. It's very difficult to gain weight in a way that maintains a waist that's 30% smaller than the hips. So what's really happening is these women are going to a fat farm where your goal is to get fatter instead of lose fat. And they're going to emerge from that weighing a lot more, but only the fittest among them will emerge weighing a lot more and still having a discernible, beautiful waist. 
again, it's not fair. Unfortunately, evolutionary psychology is not about what's fair or even about what makes sense today. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we want that doesn't make sense. Women's desire for a man who's really tall. You know, men lie online about how tall they are. And you would think that they wouldn't do it. Just like women lie about their age, you would think they wouldn't do it because you're going to get caught. Right. Yeah. The lying about height online or even in person, it can happen. Yeah. Yeah, because I went out with this guy after meeting him online and he had said he was five seven and I'm five five and a half. And I had already in my mind adjusted because I knew if he said five seven, he wasn't an inch over five five. Right. So you basically you're like, I guess I'll wear flats tonight. Yeah. So I met him and he goes, How tall are you? <laughs> I already knew that he was lying before we ever met. I had already figured it out that any time a guy said 5'7", he meant 5'5". Five five. So <laughs> I said, I'm 5'5", five five, and we're looking each other dead in the eye. I mean, we are the same height. And he said, I guess maybe I'm not 5'7". Like as if he just found that out that night standing next to you. Yeah. And you know, he didn't just find that out, but I had compassion for that. And here's why. Just as I understand why women lie about their age and why women get tummy tucks and why women put on makeup and get hair dye and all that, I, I understand that because we're in a world where men value use and beauty and women value protection and provision. And one of the ancient signs of provision and protection was a man's height. Women have shaped men to be taller, but they're still doing it. It's not like we gave all that up. This ties into the point I was really attempting to make, which is sometimes what we want just doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, honest to God, if uh, Steve Jobs had been four foot ten, he still would have been Steve Jobs, I think. If Bill Gates were five five, and I don't think Bill Gates is all that tall, but if he were only five five, he still would be one of the richest people on the face of the earth. He still would be able to provide and protect. And yet, in my classes, when I ask women to acknowledge what height of man they would prefer, I get the same results that David Buss et al. get in their studies. Routinely, 80% of women say they want a man who's six foot tall or taller, despite the fact that most men are around five foot nine to five foot ten. Let me torpedo this. Bill Gates is five ten and Steve Jobs is six two. Yeah, I knew Steve was real tall. What can I say? It's good to be six feet. Just kidding, I'm five ten. <laughs> And my husband likes to say he used to be 5'10". Does that count? That's where I'm going to go with it. You know, when I'm 50 or 60, I'll be like, look, as far as you know, I was once the height I just told you I was. <laughs> or I'll just wear really tall shoes. Exactly. As far as I know, you were six foot five. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It just ain't fair. You know what I'm saying? It's we want things and there's no off switch. And we want them even when we know logically that these things are not likely to bring us a lot of value. I did have someone challenge me on that, by the way. I had a woman write to me and say, because I get onto women about height snobbery quite frequently. And I had a woman write back to me and say, well, but I want this. And you're telling me that it doesn't make sense anymore to be a height snob, but I want it. And you're telling me that there's no value in it. But I read that men who are taller make more money. Well, on average, that is true. But how much money do you need in order to survive and thrive? Most men of every height who are in the middle class are making plenty of money for everyone to survive and thrive. And studies also show that by acting on that preference, 
evolution is not an instinct. We do not have to do what our inherited preferences tell us to do. Just because a man prefers a youthful, beautiful partner does not mean he has to have one. I've certainly known numerous men who've stayed with an aging partner through the end of her life and not had affairs and not wanted to abandon her and who have loved her through the whole thing. I think that makes sense. So it's not like you have to have youth and beauty. It's a want. It's not a must. I think it's funny that she wrote in to tell you that not only was she shallow in one way, but she was shallow in that way because she was also shallow in the other way. (laughs) Well, you know, the sexes, I think, are equivalently shallow. I think that women's desire for a partner with resources really is not any more shallow than men's desire for a partner with youth and beauty. Oh, I agree with that 100%. It's like... She should love me for my brains and look at the rack on that, right? I mean, it's, how are you going to, you can reconcile those two things. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So here's my most frequent letter where I have to really push back. It's women who don't like the part of my book where I tell them how to become instantly the young hottie with no surgery, no exercise, no dieting, and no changes to their life at all. Stand in a room full of women much older than you? Well, that's one way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is one way. You want to collaborate on my next book? I'm writing it now. Yeah, just add that to the second edition. No, it's date men who are at least 10 years older because how people define old age is typically anyone 10 years older than I am. And how people define eternal youth is typically anyone who's 10 years younger than I am. So if you date men as a straight woman, if you date men who are 10 years older than you are, you're going to have many more options and you're going to be able to compete very successfully against most of the people who are competing for those guys, i.e. their age mates. You're always going to have the advantage there. And I get so much pushback from women about this who say, I hate this phrase, God, I just, I hate this phrase, but they say, I don't want to be somebody's nursemaid. I hate that one. They do want someone to take care of them if they should get cancer and need help, mind you. What I say to them is, I'm not saying that on your online profile, you can't set the lower age limit at 10 years younger than you, but I want you to set the older age limit at 10 years older than you because A, I don't want you to lump all men 10 years older than you into the same category of decrepitude and emerging disease. You know, the fact is, yes, men 10 years older are statistically likelier than you to have any number of problems, but that's most men. I want you to keep an open mind about the rest of them. I've also had women saying, well, you would never follow that advice, Duana. Well, I have. My husband's 13 and a half years older. I'm 47 and he is going to be 61 this summer. So I have followed that advice, in fact. But the other thing is men routinely are ageist about women and women get furious about it. God, this is so depressing. I hope people are still listening. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Way to drag us into the mud here at the end of the show. I know, this is really depressing, but Chris, the guy who does all the data analysis for OkCupid, he's the statistical mastermind for them. Yeah, I also am drawing a blank on his name, but yes. Yeah, he has found that how people behave on OkCupid is the men look at pictures of women who are 18, 19, and 20, At 21, the views start dropping off. Like you're already an old bat when you're 21. (laughs) As soon as you can buy a beer, they don't want to buy it for you. The thing is that these same men don't really want to marry or even necessarily date a woman who's only 21. Again, what our evolutionary psychology wants 
is not necessarily the same thing that is in our best interest or that we quote unquote should be doing. Most marriages last better and more happily if the couple's no more than nine years apart. That seems to be the magic number for most people most of the time. But what I have to say to these women is, look, men are ageist and you hate it. And I say, so how is it okay for you to be ageist right now? Well, it makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, when they won't date the guy 10 years older, they're also being ageist, right? Well, yeah, that's true. Didn't really think about that, but you're right. Yeah. So that works both ways. Anyway, the hardest conversations that I often have with people who are either my clients or write into me at my website are conversations where they want something that their inherited mating psychology is telling them to want, even though wanting that particular thing no longer makes sense and is in fact shrinking the mating pool for them. Thank you so much, Joanna. As always, a wealth of information and surprising insight into our own evolved or or not so evolved minds. All right, thanks so much, Jordan. Thanks, Jason. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys soon. Interesting stuff as usual. I mean, look, it's no surprise that men and women have shaped each other through evolution and sexual preference. That It's not something I've ever thought about, but I'm definitely interested in the fact that not only do these preferences shape the way that we select a mate, but of course also what we do to prevent others from selecting mates that we want and also to improve our chances, AKA what we're lying about is rooted in those things. Because on its face, it's like, why would I lie about my height? Who cares, right? She's gonna find out eventually, but it's all just our reptile brain convincing the rest of our brain to do something that's kind of short-sighted, but somehow effective. So I think it's always fascinating to talk to Duana. She's always got interesting insights, some of which, as we saw, can be a little bit depressing into our reptilian brain and the part of us all of us, that hasn't changed in hundreds of thousands of years. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Duena on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including Duena's book, Love Factually. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode, and we link to the show notes directly on your phone there. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You can find our sponsors at theartofcharm.com slash advertisers, and I'd like to encourage you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.